Nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum diarbus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brother in Christ, laudetu Jesus Christus in secula. This is Timothy Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. Today we're going to be talking about the encyclical era and magisterial acts in the context of the newest encyclical from Pope Francis, Fratelli Tutti. So we're going to give a little historical context. We're going to talk about the categories of magisterial acts, and we'll also get into the encyclical a little bit. Before we do that, please like and subscribe this video. Please become a patron of this apostolate, prayer or financially. You get free books, and there's also patron-only live broadcasts. So thanks for your support. Thanks for all the patrons. So we're going to get into this. What we'll do here is we're going to begin with a parable of the history of the church from St. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And he saith to them that day, when he evening was come, let us pass over to the other side. And sending away the multitude, they take him even as he was in the ship, and there were other ships with him. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that the ship was filled. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, sleeping upon a pillow. And they awake him and say to him, Master, doth it not concern thee that we perish? And rising up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was made a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you fearful? Have you not faith yet? And they feared exceedingly, and they said one to another, Who is this that both wind and sea obey him? From St. Mark. Now, why is this a parable of the history of the church? The reason is because the church fathers understand this parable to be a picture of the church. The church is the ship manned by the apostles in Christ, beaten by the waves. What are the waves? The waves of the flesh, the world, the flesh, the devil the persecutions of the evil one, the conspiracy of Antichrist to overthrow the church. The text says that the ship was filled. There's water coming in on the ship. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, is asleep. And the apostles are filled with fear. And they say, do you not care that we perish? And then Jesus rises up and he rebukes the world, the flesh, and the devil, calms the storm, and they continue on their way and reach their destination. This is the history of the church. Because every new generation, every new period is a new time of testing of our faith. A time of testing of the boat. The boat is the church. The church is indestructible. The church will never be destroyed, but the church will take on water. And Jesus will be asleep in the church. And we will be perishing. 
and it will seem as if the boat is about to sink. And that is the way that our fathers have dealt with this for hundreds of years. There have been many moments in the church history where the church seemed to be sinking, seemed to be at its end. The world seemed to be at its end. And we've discussed this in many different particular points, but this is the parable of the history of the church. And so we're at a time right now which appears that the church is sinking. It appears that the church is taking on water, that this boat is going to sink. That's what it seems to look like. And we are losing our faith. Now, I need to give credit to E. Michael Jones, who uses this parable, but we're going to actually build on it as well. We're going to say, not only is water coming in, but pirates have taken over the boat. They've locked up the apostles, they've thrown them in the brig, and now the pirates are manning the ship. And the pirates are attempting to sink the ship. Now, what do you do if you're in the boat and the pirates take over and the seas are stormy? Well, again, throughout the history of the church, there's been different solutions to this. One solution is to jump overboard. But just as the, the church is the, the ark of salvation, we who jump overboard will go to eternal damnation. We leave the church. There's no salvation outside the church. Leave the church and you'll be damned. So jumping out of the ship means you drowned. Now, the pirates have taken over the ship. Some have jumped off the ship because they saw an island. They saw dry land. They thought it was safer there. So this is an example of the Eastern Orthodox. They thought it was safer to have Caesar rule them and to split away from the Roman primacy. And it's, it's as if they have jumped ship and gotten onto an island. So it appears very solid. There's no wind and waves, seemingly, but they have not reached the destination. And they've also stopped moving forward towards that destination. And so the Eastern Orthodox cannot authoritatively decide magisterial decisions that universally bind the whole church. And we've discussed this in a few different places on this channel. Because the Roman Catholic Church has a magisterium. And this is what we'll get into. The magisterium is the teacher. It is the teaching authority of the church, the pope, and the bishops. Now, the Eastern Orthodox used to have this, but they used to have ecumenical councils. They used to have universal canon law. But because they've broken away from Rome, they cannot do this anymore. They have been locked in a 500-year de facto schism, which is now broken out into formal schism between Moscow and Constantinople. Now, on the other hand, there are those who jump out of the ship into a life raft. They take something from the ship, and they try to make it on their own. That is an example of the Protestants. They try to get into a life raft or, or rip something out of the hull or, or a mast or whatever. They take someone from the boat, jump into the water, try to make it on their own. That is the Protestants. Now, the Protestants have split, split into 48,000 denominations, but they've all taken something from the church, especially the Holy Scriptures. That's the thing that they've taken from the church. Now, it helps them float. They certainly they 
They're not bereft of any help, obviously, but they're hopelessly splintered. So it's doubtful that they will arrive at the destination. Now, the destination is eternal life, going through the storms of the waves of this world, the flesh and the devil. Now, only the Roman Catholic Church, as we discussed on Wednesday, only the Roman Catholic Church possesses the authority to authoritatively resolve the situation. Only the Roman Catholic Church has proven itself capable of resolving the situation with binding authority. And this is what represents when our Lord does finally arise. For example, we think of the Council of Trent. By the time the Council of Trent was finally called and finally concluded, there had, the Protestantism has, had already destroyed a great deal of Europe. But that's what really began the Counter-Reformation, which made great gains, in fact, until France betrayed the church. But that's another story. Now, what is the magisterium? Now, the magisterium comes from, in particular, a verse that I discuss in my book, is Acts chapter 16, verse 4, which says, I'm going to be translating straight from the Greek here. So it says, they traditioned, they went through the cities. So this is, they were coming from the Jerusalem council. They had made a magisterial decision. And they, the apostles, they went through the cities and they traditioned to them, meaning they, they passed down to them, to guard and keep the dogmas which were decreed by the apostles and priests at Jerusalem. So they're, they're going through all the cities, they're announcing a, a decree that is a dogma which has been decided by the priests and the apostles at Jerusalem. This is the quintessential verse of what the magisterium is. It's making a, an authoritative decision, which is then passed down to the faithful for them to obey. Now, Think about this for a second. If the Roman Catholic Church is the true church and pirates take over the church, they took over the ship, all they have to do is dogmatize heresy. It's very simple. That's how they sink the boat. All they have to do is dogmatize heresy. Boom. The ship is sunk. All they have to say is, we define, we declare that such and such heresy. And then the ship is sunk. But they can't do it because Roman Catholic Church is the true church. It's a divine institution. The, the ship, the hull of the ship, is like the dogmas of the faith. The hull is indestructible. Now, the pirates may get in. They may take over. They may steer the boat in all sorts of directions. The boat may take on more water. But they've been unable to dogmatize heresy. Now, in our time... From my view, I do believe that the pirates have taken over the the ship, but I do observe that they have not been able to dogmatize heresy. What they are able to do is put forth a great deal of words that do not have a great deal of meaning or clarity as to what what is being taught, which causes confusion, but it doesn't actually bind the faithful. Now, we'll talk about what does bind the faithful, and what is the binding character of this? But it's important to to be keep in mind that all the different time periods in the church when the pirates have taken over the ship, there has never been a time when the magisterium actually ceased. Now, in our day, 
many Catholics want to believe that the magisterium has basically ceased. They want to simply ignore everything that comes out of the Vatican because it's so corrupt. But the magisterium still exists. Now, because this, the assertion that the magisterium no longer exists and we should just ignore everything is basically the position of sede privationism. That idea is that the popes are true popes, but they've essentially lost their authority. So they're kind of, they have the office without the power of the office. So this is what many Catholics want to happen. But even if the pirates take over the ship and the pirate is at the helm of the ship, the pirate can, sh can still man the ship. He can still, uh, you know, he can still pull the rudder. He can still pull the sails. He can still man the ship and the ship is still going to work because the ship is divine. The ship is indestructible. The ship is still going to work. So valid popes can still make valid decisions. I mean, people don't like uh, John Paul II, for example. But John Paul II made a decision about female ordination. He said, we declare that a woman cannot be ordained and this must be held definitively. I would say this is very, a, a very clear example of, the, of Christ arising and calming the waves and the storms by a magisterial act. So, we can't deny that the magisterium is still in existence. Now, the, we're, we live in the encyclical era. Another part about true church history is that the, the growth of the secular state has been matched by the growth of the papacy. Now, first, you had the rise of Constantinople. You can watch my three-part series on the Greek schism about that. Constantinople rose in power, which was then matched by the papacy. And the reason the papacy grows in power and influence is because the papacy feels the need to do so because kings and princes are trying to grasp at the power of Christ and trying to take over the church. And so first you had the rise of Constantinople, but then there was the decline of the Constantinople, especially after the Mohammedans invaded. But then you have the rise of the Western city-states, the Western nations. Uh, you have the investiture controversy culminating in the, Greek, the Great Schism of the West. And then in the so-called Reformation, the, the Protestant revolt, Protestant looters revolt. So this is the, the rise of the state. And, and then it gets even worse. It's the dark age of tyranny until 1776. And then you have mob violence until 1776 to today. And all the while, the state is becoming more and more, more and more powerful to the point where our secular state, as we can see with the COVID-1984 crisis, has gr grown to such a degree that the secular state in four years of a presidency has more power than a medieval king had for his entire reign at this point. So there is such power. And that's why the papacy has felt the need to also grow in its own power in order to check the power of the secular state. So in this era, this era is called what I, what I call the encyclical era. This is when the popes have begun to write encyclicals all the time. Now this started especially with Benedict XIV, with Vix Pernet which was then universalized by Gregory XVI. But then you also have Pius VI, who has Actorum Fidei, which is addressed to all the faithful. And then you have more and more, Gregory XVI, Morare Vos, we have Pius IX, Syllabus of Errors, uh, Quanta Cura, and Vatican I. And then especially with Leo XIII, after the secular state takes over the Vatican. Then you have Leo XIII churning out three and a half 
cyclicals per year, more than any other pope before him. So he's shooting out. He's I believe it's 88 encyclicals in his reign. He was a long reigning pope, but he churned out a great deal of encyclicals. Now, in the, since that time, you have all the 20th century where the popes have just put out so many words. And the reason for this is the growth of the secular state, the growth of the universal problems. There's been so many more universal problems because of the secular state that the papacy has felt the need to put out more and more documents. Now, this is a great thing, but it also comes with its own difficulties, which we'll discuss in just a minute. Now, the authority of the faith comes from scripture and tradition. Now, this is where we're going to get into two different important virtues here, faith and piety. Now, when we talk about the magisterium, the magisterium fits into a trifecta of the church's power. You have the scripture and tradition, which are the first place, the authority of the church. The one authority of the church is scripture and tradition. And the magisterium is its guardian. Now, I'm going to read a passage. This passage is from Dei Verbum, chapter 10. This is probably my favorite passage from Vatican II because it perfectly summarizes this back and forth between scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture form one sacred deposit of the word of God committed to the church. Holding fast to this deposit, the entire holy people united with their shepherds who remain always steadfast in the teaching of the apostles, in the common life, in the breaking of the bread, and in prayers. So that holding to, practicing, and professing the heritage of the faith, it, be, it becomes on the part of the bishops and the faithful a single common effort. But, now, key point here is that scripture and tradition are the one authority of the church, period. Bishops and the faithful are in one single act drawing from that source, the deposit, all that is necessary for salvation. Now, but... The task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, the magisterium, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. Here's the key point. This teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It draws from this one deposit of faith everything that is presented for belief as divinely revealed. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching and authority of the church in accord with God's most wise design are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others, and that all together and each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. End quote. De Verbum 10. This... I think beautifully encapsulates the interplay between scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. So the Protestants only have scripture, and they're hopelessly divided. The Eastern Orthodox have scripture and tradition, but they cannot authoritatively interpret their tradition, which binds all their faithful. And so the Roman Catholic Church has the third piece, magisterium, which is able to authoritatively interpret the word of God, whether written or handed down. Now, once again, we're in the situation where the pirates have taken over the ship, but all they have to do is dogmatize heresy, but they haven't been able to do that. Now, when we go into the difficulties of the encyclical era, I want to recommend this book. Now, if you go to a link 
below this show, there is a link to the chart that I'm about to talk about and it, the sources of that. But this, this one in particular, this is, in my opinion, the best source for beginners. This is a 50-page book by Father Chad Ripperger called Mysteri- Magisterial Authority. So if you go to that link below on the chart, there's a list of all the sources, and this is one of them. This source is, is excellent, an excellent introduction to this dif- these difficulties that we're dealing with. And I'm going to try to summarize some of the, the basic aspects of this. Now, faith and piety. So faith, the virtue of faith, is given to the deposit of faith. We assent with the assent of faith. Now, so it is, it is given to the divinely revealed truth of God. Now, piety is a natural virtue as opposed to the theological. Faith is a theological virtue, supernatural virtue. Piety is a natural virtue. It is what we give to our parents. We reverence authorities. We reverence human authorities. Now, this show we're going to be talking about the magisterium, but on Monday we'll we'll have a Terror of Demons morning show. We're going to talk about the piety given to rulers, especially in the context of COVID-1984. So piety is given to human authority. Now, that can be either be the rulers or the princes of the church. Now, the standard for all Christians is 1 Peter 2.13, which states, Be ye subject, therefore, to every human creature for God's sake, whether it be to the king as excelling, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of the good. For so is the will of God, that by doing well you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men." As Catholics, we need to love obedience. We need to love obedience. This verse commands us to, to obey even these pagan authorities. In St. Peter's time, those were all these pagan authorities worshiping demons. And he says, obey them. Be subject to every human creature for the sake of God. Another more important reason is it's an imitation of Christ. Jesus Christ came to earth and the scripture says he was subject to them them meaning joseph and mary that is why pious tradition holds that joseph was also sinless to a degree because it was not fitting that jesus our lord would have to disobey joseph as the head of the family jesus christ was obedient philippians says he was obedient unto death That is the obedience of Christ. We should love obedience. We should love obedience as an imitation of Christ. We should love to obey. Obedience is the swiftest right to humility. Humility is, in some sense, the fountain of all virtues. And so this is so crucially important. But there, in another place in the book of Acts, the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. And this is where the dynamic between piety and faith comes into conflict. Because faith is a higher virtue. It's a supernatural virtue. And piety is to, towards human authority. So, St. Alphonsus says, We must obey our confessors in everything which is not manifestly sinful. That's from his sermon on the fourth Sunday after Easter. So, we obey our confessors because we have piety, but in what is manifestly sinful, we must disobey. 
again, Roman Catechism says that wives should obey their husbands, giving them, quote, a willing and ready obedience, but in all things that are not inconsistent with Christian piety, end quote. So a wife should always obey and submit to her husband, but if her husband does something that is inconsistent with Christian piety, she must disobey because she must obey God rather than men. And Roman Catechism says the same thing about children and parents. Children should disobey their parents if their parents are telling them to do something sinful. So, this is the interplay between faith and piety, and disobedience and obedience between human authority and the authority of God. Now, how does this work into the magisterium? I'm... Here I'm going to try to break down three different categories of magisterial acts. Now, keep in mind, if you read the sources that I noted on this post, there's a lot of other distinctions. So we're going to try to really boil it down here. So there are more complexities to this. So keep that in mind here. But this is just going to try to give you a really basic understanding of these three different categories of magisterial acts. Okay, so so the first category on the left side is de fide or definitive. Definitive means something has been defined. De fide means it's of the faith. It is something that has been dogmatized. Now, the category for this is either true or false. This is something that's, that is regarding something that is true. It is asserting something to be true. Okay. Now, the middle below that is the common or probable so sententia communis, for example. So this is also regarding something that is true or false. Okay. Now, this contracts with the prudential teaching or the policy, which is either it's not a matter of being true or false. It's a matter of being effective or ineffective, good or evil, useful or useless. So an example right off the bat here of the prudential decision is when Pope Clement suppressed the Jesuits. Now, Centuries ago, the Jesuits were the bulwark of the church, preaching the gospel and saving souls throughout the world. And at that time, that was the time when Pope Clement suppressed the Jesuits, when he was pressured by Masonic states in Europe to suppress the Jesuits because they wanted to suppress the church. And they pressured Pope Clement to suppress the Jesuits, which he did. This was his prudential decision. So he was not making an assertion about something that was true or false. He was making an assertion about something that's ineffective or ineffective. He he was essentially asserting that the Jesuits are ineffective or they're useless. When in fact, at that time, they were the most effective in the whole church. So we can say with a hindsight of history, we can say this prudential decision was in error. But we're not asserting that it was false, because that's not the category that it's under, if that makes sense. So what happened was that decision was eventually reversed. So these things can be reversed. If they're a prudential decision, they can be reversed, because it's simply a policy. So let's continue. So what is the certainty of the de fide? The de fide is infallible. It's infallible. No error. The common or probable teaching is a fallible teaching. This is something where the magisterium says something which is connected to the faith by reason, yet 
is not explicitly revealed by Scripture and tradition. Therefore, the common teaching can be fallible. It is something that can also be reversed or developed in different ways that the de fide cannot be. And the prudential, obviously, is, is fallible as well. So then, what are the sources? De fide. Scripture, tradition, popes, bishops, councils, fathers, and scholastics. So the consensus of any of these things is infallible, period. De fide. The normal way that things are de fide is what's called the universal and ordinary magisterium, which is basically what all the believers have believed throughout time, through centuries, the universal witness of the fathers or the scholastics or the councils of the bishops or the popes. If they all agree on something, that's de fide. It's infallible. That would be what's called de fide non definita, which means it's not been defined explicitly, but it has de fide because it's a universal witness. So that is something that's de fide. Now, a common or probable has all those same sources, but notice another addition is the congregations. So this is something the Vatican congregations, they are asserting something that is more on the level of sententia communis, which means that we must obey it, and we'll get into the assent, we must obey it, but it is of a lesser authority. Now, lastly, we have the prudential policy. What is the source there? Well, it's the Pope, bishops, councils, priests, theologians, parents, congregations, or academies. Now, these things are making decisions about a particular instance. They are not on the level of theory as much as they are on the level of practice, on, on the practical level, making a particular decision for a particular time so we're not talking about uh, whole councils dogmatizing something. We're talking about a particular instance. Now, major acts in these categories, Trent and Vatican I in De Fide, they, they, they dogmatized many things in both of these councils. A good example of a dogma, dogmatization is a position which ends with the words, let him be anathema. Whoever says X, Y, Z, let him be anathema. So a very important anathema from Vatican I is whoever says with the passion of passion, passage of time, a new sense can be given to the dogmas of the faith that the church has understood and understands, let him be anathema. That's a very important one which we'll get into in a moment. Because you cannot place a different sense than there was before, which is substantially different. Now, Common or probable teaching is an example of the syllabus of errors. The syllabus of errors is essentially a list of condemned propositions which all have different levels of authority. They're not all de fide. And most of them are simply just common, probable assertions of Pius IX which, when he's condemning certain things. Now, a major act of the prudential side is Vatican II. Vatican II is primarily a policy change in which the church decided to make a policy change in an attempt to convert the modern world. Now, historically, I know there's different arguments that there was modernist infiltration, and that was true to a degree, of course, but on the ontological level of a magisterial act, it is always for the intentions of converting the faith and spreading the gospel. So, Vatican II is an example of change of policy. There's not, there's not any dogma in Vatican II. There's not any let him be anathemas in Vatican II. So, now, we kind of touched on this a little bit. What, what are the objects of these acts? The object means that is the thing that is being acted upon. The object of 
a de fide, or a common teaching, are faith and morals. This is what is always talked, mentioned, faith and morals, faith and morals. That is because God has promised divine assistance to the church to teach faith and morals which are necessary for salvation. And that's what we just read from day Verbum 10. But take a look at prudential policy. Here, here's, what, here's where it, the object of prudential policies are contingencies. This is a phrase from Donum Veritatis from the CDF 1990. What are contingencies? Well, they're politics, economics, science, history. Essentially, they are the domain of the laity to rule. So these are not faith and morals per se. Now, everything is, in one sense, everything is faith and morals, because everything is moral in some sense, because it's all given to God. But there are areas of expertise, and with the laity, chiefly are the ones ruling, and especially politics. Priests should not be politicians. And this is this, the distinction without separation of church and state, which has always been preached by the church. So contingency. So when the so when the church makes a prudential decision about a political or economic matter, that is what a prudential decision is. It's it's what it's dealing with, the contingencies. So then another contrast is that the de fide or common magisterial acts are manifest. They are making something clear that is manifest, manifestly clear. They're making something clear. Now, the prudential decision is less clear. It is doubtful because it depends on many contingencies. So we are currently in an election, like in the United States, there's an election. So people are disputing thing about things like tax policy, things like healthcare, things like economics. These are all Doubtful matters. They are things that are gray. They are not black and white. And furthermore, many of them are simply effective or ineffective, not necessarily true or false. So what is our response to these? So in terms of faith, our response to a de fide is the ascent of faith. The Ascent of faith is what we give to de fide, it's infallible. We give submission of mind and will to what is common or probable. So the normal acts of bishops and priests and popes, we give submission of mind and will. Now, this is still a part of faith because there is still divine assistance provided in these instances, but they are not fallible. So we give them not the ascent of faith, but which is essentially blind submission, Ascent of faith is essentially blind submission. But submission of mind and will is meaning that's what we give to our parents. We give them submission of mind and will. We obey them unless it's manifestly sinful otherwise. And we'll get into that. Now, prudential decisions, you also give submission of mind and will, but it is not a part of faith, but a part of prudence. So your divine assistance is not given to the papacy to adjudicate the political dispute between the electors of the Holy Roman Empire, for example, or... England and France in the Hundred Years' War, or Vatican II and Gaudium Space, for example, advocates worldwide government. Divine assistance has not been promised to the church to make prudential decisions about politics. So we need to submit our mind and will to it, but it's not infallible. It's not divinely inspired. It's not a part of faith. 
So we need to give it the benefit of the doubt. We need to listen to it. We don't dismiss it, but we listen to it and we try to obey it as much as we can. Now, moving on, and we're going to get to an example about the fifth commandment, which is going to bear upon the encyclical in just a minute. Now, the second part is piety. We always give piety to our authorities. So on the one hand, de fide, we give the utmost piety because it's the supreme act of the magisterium. We sort of give normal piety to an, an ordinary act of the magisterium. And then obedience or respect is still given to a prudential decision. So we respect it. That means we witness to the honor of the office, the excellency of the office. We witness to it. We don't just dismiss it or ridicule it. That is sinful. We do not do that. We are Catholics. We don't ridicule our, our leaders, even if they're heretics. We don't ridicule them. We reverence them because we reference their office. That's a very important point. Now, here's some examples. Fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. So first of all, de fide, child murder and killing the sick is intrinsically evil. It can never be good to do, ever. It's intrinsically evil. It is evil in every single circumstance. That's de fide. Now, another de fide proposition is that the death penalty or just war is permitted on strict theoretical conditions. That, I argue, is a de fide proposition based on the universal and ordinary magisterium. It's always been held. It's in scripture and tradition explicitly. It's commanded by God. God cannot command what is intrinsically evil. It's impossible. God cannot command what is intrinsically evil. So therefore, it is permitted on strict theoretical conditions. Now catch the note here, theoretical conditions. So we're talking about, in theory, it's permitted. Not necessarily in every case. Not necessarily even in every case today. Now, what is the common teaching? Now here's an example of a common teaching. This is from St. Alphonsus' Moral Theology. His common teaching, his, what he says is a common teaching from all the theologians, is that a subject is bound to fight in a war that is commanded by his sovereign, even if it is doubtfully just. So let's say you are a U.S. soldier, you're in the military, and the U.S. has just invaded Iraq. And you have tried to study this, but you don't know if that's a just war or not. Well, you were bound to obey your sovereign and go into war in Iraq, because even if it's doubtfully just. Now, if you come to certainty... St. Alphonsus says, if you come to certainty that the war is not just, you must abstain from combat. So let's say you studied it more, you found out that the Iraq war was an unjust war, and then you must abstain, even to the point of disobeying your, your superiors. It's an unjust war. You can't do it. So that's what St. Alphonsus said, but that's an example of a common teaching. So, and we'll get into, can we dissent from common teachings in just a minute? So here's a prudential teaching. Just war is not permitted in the modern world due to the horrors of modern warfare. So modern warfare is, is waged by citizens against other citizens. Uh, you know, hunt, thousands of civilians are killed. Modern warfare weapons are filled with horror and destruction, killing and creating widows and orphans throughout the world. One could argue, reasonably, that just war no longer exists in our modern world, modern warfare. You know, just war in the days of the church, in Saint Saint uh, Saint Thomas, was mainly done by mercenaries, who had bows and spears and swords, 
and there were rules of warfare and things of this nature. But in today's world, we have total war. We have destruction of whole cities. I mean, can we really justify that? So that's, for example, that's a prudential decision. That's a prudential teaching. So if the if the church says that, and this is what we'll get into with the Fratelli Tutti, the church says just war is not permissible. It must only be so in this practical frame of mind, saying that in this condition, in the circumstances that we're in now, it cannot be permitted. Now, getting into the death penalty controversy, the death penalty is inadmissible. There's another prudential teaching example. The death penalty is inadmissible in the modern world due to modern incarceration methods. So the argument, obviously, is that the, the modern methods of incarceration are sufficient to protect the society from some, a murderous criminal. He should not be put to death. He should be given... He should be given the, you know, the chance to repent. He should be given more time to repent, according to mercy, because of modern incarceration methods. The society can be kept safe by that. So that is a prudential teaching. This is essentially the teaching of St. John Paul II, I would understand it to be. Um, he was also very much against just war, for example, against the Iraq invasion, for example. So... Can you ever dissent from a de fide proposition? No. You can never dissent from a de fide proposition. This is the mortal sin of error or heresy against the faith. So this is the mortal sin. Now, can you dissent from a common teaching? You can, but only with strict conditions. There must be grave and manifest conditions on the basis of sound authority. So in other words, you do not you cannot put aside a common teaching just because, well, I disagree with that. Well, I have a different opinion. Well, that's not, that's not good enough. Who are you against St. Alphonsus? Who are you against St. Thomas? We're going to believe St. Thomas and St. Augustine and St. Alphonsus before you. And you can't just dismiss it on your own authority. You have to, it must be a grave manifest reason. So an example for, of this which we'll get into, is when magisterial acts seem to contradict. There seems to be a magisterial act which is of the common authority, which seems to be contradicting something of a higher authority. So we'll get into that in just a moment. So, But if you set aside a common teaching on your own authority without grave manifest cause, you are committing the mortal sin of error or temerity. Temerity is the, a mortal sin, uh, essentially pride. It is essentially a prideful disregard of rightful authority. Now, finally, can you disagree with a prudential decision? This is where the laity have the most freedom to disagree and disobey the Pope. They can be disobeyed on a prudential decision on the bare authority of the laity. This is a situation where the laity do have more authority, in a sense, than the bishops, on contingent matters. So in 2004, this holy office, the CDF, in fact said that a Catholic can be, quote, at odds with the Holy Father on the death penalty or on just war, on these two issues regarding the fifth commandment. He can be at odds with. Now, I don't know if that was the the original language on that. I'm not sure if it was Italian or Latin or whatnot, but it was sent to an American bishop, 
McCarrick, in fact. But in English, it said, a Catholic can be at odds with the Holy Father on just war and death penalty and still present himself for Holy Communion. Okay. Sorry, I started that music. Um, so a Catholic can be at odds with the Holy Father on the death penalty and the just war, according to the Holy Office itself. So, the that is where a prudential decision can, in fact, be disobeyed, as long as you must still keep piety. You must still keep piety to the magisterium. We can't just throw it out and be completely dismissed. Now, the key part here is that the magisterium has a duty to teach. And we, the laity, have a duty to learn. We have a duty to submit to the magisterium. But what if there is a doubtful matter? St. Alphonsus says when there is a doubtful matter about whether something is sinful or not, in other words, if it's just completely 50-50, we don't really, there's kind of a toss-up, we don't know, we should obey rightful authority, just like in the just war situation. If a pope or bishop says something, or even our confessor says or commands something of us, which we're not sure if it's sinful or not, we're, we are completely on the fence, 50-50. St. Alphonsus says we must obey in that, in that case. And the reason is because our Lord said, he who hears you hears me. We must obey. We, we have to give the benefit of the doubt to the magisterium, to the cleric. That is who we must obey. Now, however, Ripperger points out, here, here's an example of a doubtful matter that's a little bit different. He says, quote, this is Magisterial Authority, page 51. If a subsequent teaching does not address a prior teaching, and the prior is more founded on the deposit of faith and tradition... One is free to adhere to the prior teaching unless the subsequent teaching is stated in a more authoritative way. So, we mentioned how it is de fide, or at least it, some may disagree that it's de fide on the ordinary magisterium, but at least the common teaching. So, the here, here's a quote from uh, the Declaration of Truths from, from uh, Athanasius Snyder, Cardinal Burke, and others, this is what they think it is. Quote, In accordance with the Holy Scripture and the constant tradition of the ordinary and universal magisterium, a.k.a. de fide, the Church did not err in teaching that the civil of power may lawfully exercise capital punishment on malefactors where this is truly necessary to preserve the existence or just order of societies. End quote. So they're making reference to the constant tradition of the ordinary and universal magisterium. So this is a very high authority the constant tradition of the ordinary universal magisterium. That is something that is de fide non definita. So it is de fide, it's dogmatized, it's dogma, but it has not been defined explicitly by a magisterial act, but it's still de fide. Now they make reference here to Genesis 9-6, and we're going to get back to that, because Fratelli Tutti references that in a very interesting way. So, this is the issue with the whole Vatican II crisis, is that we have all this body of teaching which has been stated in a very authoritative way in the encyclical era. In these encyclicals, they have been stated in, a, in an authoritative way. But then we have Vatican II Council and other step, statements of the magisterium, which bear upon the same subjects, yet 
They ignore the prior teaching. So, for example, there is the there is the statement of Vatican II, Redinta Gratio Unitatis, which is the statement on ecumenism. Well, that, that document does not reference the prior magisterial acts on the subject of ecumenism. Why does it not reference these prior acts? Or for another example, Familiaris Consortio. This is a document in the 1980s by John Paul II, and it does not reference the prior two encyclicals about marriage. Arcanum from Leo XIII or Casti Canimbiu from Pius XI. So we're in a situation like this. We are students in a classroom. And in the morning, the teacher teaches us about 2 plus 2 equals 4. She teaches us the math and how the math breaks down and how 2 plus 2 equals 4. So then we go to recess, we eat lunch, we come back in the afternoon. Now, the teacher says... 2 plus 2 equals 5. What is the duty of the student now in this case? Well, our duty is to learn and listen to the teacher and obey. But which one do we obey? Do we obey what she said before or what she says now? Well, what she said before has a higher weight in this example. So we need to ask the teacher, well, what did you mean by that? What do you mean 2 plus 2 equals 5? What is going on here? We don't understand. So the duty of the faithful is to submit our dubia to the Pope. But this is the situation we're in. We've submitted our dubia. And not just the dubia during Pope Francis, but the dubia during Benedict XVI. The dubia during John Paul II. Dubia that have been sent to the popes for clarification, but there's been no clarification given. This is the situation that we're in. So what are we to do except to fall back on the prior teaching, which is of a higher authority and more clear? So what does Pope Francis say about the death penalty in Fratelli Tutti? Paragraph 263. St. John Paul II stated clearly and firmly that the death penalty is inadequate from a moral standpoint and no longer necessary from that of penal justice. There can be no stepping back from this position. Okay, so that pause, that phrase, there can be no stepping back from this position, contradicts what the Holy Office said in 2004. A Catholic can be at odds with the Holy Father about the death penalty. So Pope Francis says that there can be no stepping back from this position. Well, what, what is it? Which is it? Is he saying that John Paul II was not actually teaching a prudential decision about the death penalty? Which I believe he was. What does that mean? Now, Pope Francis goes on. Today we state clearly the death penalty is inadmissible, and the Church is firmly committed to calling for its abolition worldwide. Well, what does it you say? Pope Francis says that they are stating clearly... Well, what, what does inadmissible mean? This has been the, the controversy. Two years ago, in August, there was the Appeals of the Cardinals of the Church, published in First Things, which brought together trads and conservatives, 
prominent priests and theologians and scholars, and they stated that inadmissible seems to suggest that it is intrinsically evil. But as we stated, God cannot command something that is intrinsically evil, and God has commanded the death penalty. So, what does it mean that it's inadmissible? It doesn't appear to be clear. It's saying we state clearly, but that's not clear. What does it mean to be inadmissible? Does it mean it's intrinsically evil, or does it mean it is prudentially condemned? So, here is here's the quote from Genesis 9-5 that he uses, and then we'll wrap up if anybody has any questions, comments about this. He says this, Pope Francis, For us, this is paragraph 270, For us, this prophecy took flesh in Christ Jesus, who, seeing a disciple tempted to violence, said firmly, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. These words echoed the ancient warning, I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, if I understand what Pope Francis is saying here, the Holy Father seems to be asserting that Genesis 9, 5, and 6 is not a commandment of God, but rather a prediction that sinful man will retaliate when you use the sword. And this is something he, he, con- he condemns a few different uh, things that we should condemn about the death penalty. We're, we're not, the death penalty should not be something that is a, a, some sort of personal revenge. It should not be, certainly, um, innocent people should not be condemned to death either. And things of that nature, which we, we can all condemn, we can all agree with that, with the Holy Father here. But we would say, we would reverence the Holy Father's office, we should give him piety and say, holiness, what do you mean by this? Because in paragraph 269, he says this, the firm rejection of the death penalty shows to what extent it is possible to recognize the inalienable dignity of every human being to accept that he or she has a place in this universe. But if we look up Genesis 9, it says this, Whoever shall shed man's blood, his blood shall be shed, for man was made to the image of God. So God himself commands the death penalty in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, and he gives a justification. He's, he's commanding the death penalty because of the image of God. But Pope Francis here, your holiness, you seem to be asserting that we should reject the penalty precisely for the very same reason that God commands the death penalty. Namely, human dignity, the image of God. And so this appears to be a contradiction. And that is why there has been this appeal by these prominent scholars and priests. There's been what I quoted the Declaration of Truths from a number of bishops. This is an example of a doubtful matter. This is an example where Pope Francis is teaching something that appears to contradict something that has a higher authority than him. This is an encyclical. We need to give it submission of uh, religious submission of mind and will. But what about things that appear to contradict it that have a higher authority? The constant tradition of the ordinary universal magisterium is of a higher authority than an encyclical. Unless Pope Francis were to say, 
we define, we declare that it is revealed by God and de fide that Catholics must reject the death penalty as intrinsically evil. That would be an example of claiming a higher authority than the ordinary universal magisterium. So, what are we to do? If we are to continue to have piety, we need to have reverence for the office of the papacy, the office of the Holy See. We should not go around mocking Pope Francis. We should not go around, you know, going on tirades on the internet. Even St. James says that we, with the same mouth, we reverence God and we curse our brother. So we should not speak irreverently of the holder of the chair of Peter, even if he is a heretic, even if he is a bad pope. We should not speak that way about the office of the papacy. What did the, how did the saints speak to these, these popes when they rebuked them? They still reverence their office. And so this is a very important thing. We need to keep piety. But we need to also understand that the faith is higher that higher than the virtue of piety, the faith. And we need to reverence the higher authority in terms of magisterial acts. So it appears to me that the only way to understand Pope Francis's words is to assert that he is making a more firm declaration on a prudential level than John Paul II. John Paul II, I understand, was making a prudential decision about the death penalty. He was advocating that the death penalty was not appropriate, not admissible in the modern context, as can be reasonably asserted. You can reasonably assert that. You can reasonably assert and assert that just war is not capable of being done in the modern context. That's a reasonable assertion. That's a prudential decision. But we are not bound to obey this in the same way as faith in morals we must reverence this decision. We just must respect it, give it, give the benefit of the doubt, learn from it, listen. But we can disobey this as long as we keep piety. So that is the only way that I can see that we can possibly understand Pope Francis's words, even though, on the other hand, I think it's completely reasonable to assert that Pope Francis intends to teach that the, the death penalty is intrinsically evil. I think that is a rational conclusion. Now, in closing, I want to mention Lumen Gentium 25. This is the only part of Vatican II that John Paul II asked Lefebvre to accept as a part of the reconciliation in 1988. So in May of 1988, Lefebvre actually signed a document, which, were, which is where he, he actually he did confess Lumen Gentium 25. So... Lumen Gentium 25 states that we are to submit ourselves to the Pope and bishops even when they don't speak infallibly. And Lefebvre, what's interesting is that Lefebvre signed on to this after Assisi happened. Assisi was in 1986. He signed this in 1988. But what's key about this is, I'm going to read this and then we'll just close out. Um, so this is Lumen Gentium 25. It says, 
The religious submission of mind and will must be shown in a special way to the authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. That is, it must be shown in such a way that his supreme magisterium is acknowledged with reverence and that the judgments made by him are sincerely adhered to according to his manifest mind and will. His mind and will in the matter may be principally known either from the character of the documents, from his frequent repetition of the same doctrine, and from his manner of speaking. So, his mana, the key term here is manifest. It must be manifest. What are you teaching, Holy Father? What do you mean by that? Well, the last time the Holy See asserted an authentic magisterium was in the case of the Morris Laetitia controversy, in which a, a number of dubia were submitted to ascertain the manifest will of the Holy Father. But the manifest will, mind and will, of the Holy Father was not given. So how can we be bound by something that is doubtful and not manifest? Vatican II itself says, it must be the manifest mind and will. But we must ascertain what that manifest mind and will is. And since we have not been able to receive what the manifest mind and will is, we have not been able to receive a, a binding decision, we are left with the only thing that is clear and binding, which is the highest authority in existence on these matters, which is the ordinary magisterium of the church or the prior infallible dogmatic teachings. So, I hope this has been helpful. Once again, if you go to the link below, there is a link to this chart that I used in the show, as well as all the sources that I used. Again, you want to pick up Magisterial Authority. It's really the best work, I think, best introductory work if you want to get into this. And that'll help clarify a lot, I think. And those recommended works can be very helpful to uh, help you sift through the difficulties. Now, this, uh, this apostolate is here for Catholics struggling with their faith, struggling with this in this crisis. That's what we're here for. So once again, please support us. Please pray for our efforts that we can work, do this work for the greater glory of God, the salvation of souls. So stay, stay tuned for Monday. We're going to talk about obedience in the same kind of context as this. We're going to then apply it to civil authorities. What, it, what are our duties in that case? So we're going to talk about that with Kennedy on the Terror of Demons morning show. So stay tuned for that. And let's offer up in our Father once again for our Holy Father, Pope Francis. Let's pray for Pope Benedict, all popes and bishops, priests. We pray especially for sinful clerics of any, of any order. We pray that may, they may be converted. We pray for the faithful that the faithful may have reverence for the office of the priests and bishops and may learn to speak reverently towards the office because we know, as the Lord said, he who hears you, hears me. Let's pray. In nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater noster quies in cede sancti vegeto nomen tuum, advenet regnum tuum vivatantas tua, sicut in cello et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie, et benda nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos amalo. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Fidi, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen.